We are going to tackle and look at the book of Zephaniah tonight, so if you've got your Bible, that's where we'll be, but in order to sort of understand Zephaniah, I think it's important to understand the beginning of the book tells us when it was written, and some of the prophets, we really don't know what, what period of history it, it falls in for sure, because there's not much of an introduction. We don't know much about the authors for the most part, and these are such short books And often that's all we know about them is what they wrote in these short prophetic books. Uh, But Zephaniah we know a little bit more about and we know that he prophesied during the reign of King Josiah. Uh, And if you know about King Josiah, he was unique for a couple of reasons. One, he was one of the best kings that Judah ever had. And two, he became king when he was, pop quiz, anybody know? Eight years old, eight years old. So, I mean, I can't even imagine like eight years old. School's tough enough. I can't imagine being king of Judah. But uh, so Josiah, the next slide, I think. Oh, it's not there. Oh, there it is. I don't know why that other slide was in there. That's because I left it in there. King Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did, as opposed to most of the kings of Judah, what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of his David, his of David, his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And Josiah issued a lot of reforms in Judah, and they began to sort of change things for the better. Uh, but of course, the reforms didn't last. Uh, nine years after, or he died in about 609 BC, and then about 12 years after his death, uh, Nebuchadnezzar came in, and Jerusalem, of course was destroyed by the Babylonians. Now, Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 1 says this, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. And so a lot of scholars have wondered, it doesn't say son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, but one of the kings was Hezekiah. And so perhaps Zephaniah is from the family of Hezekiah. Perhaps he's from the royal family. Then it says, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So if if Zephaniah uh, was from the line of Hezekiah, then that means that he and Josiah, that's a lot of ayahs, right? Uh, That's a lot of names. Uh, Zephaniah and Josiah may have been distant cousins. And so they might have both been part of the royal family. And because Josiah was only eight years old when he became king, and then he grew up and started to reform the country and didn't follow in the ways of his father, perhaps Zephaniah was prophesying to him, again, if, especially if he's part of the royal household, and maybe he's prophesying to Josiah even from a very young age and telling him, This is what's coming for our people. This is what's going to happen to Judah. Things have to change. We cannot stay on the path that we're on. Now, so as we read through uh, Zephaniah tonight, imagine being young Josiah, hearing these things when you're 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, when you're a young preteen and teenager, hearing these prophecies and knowing that a lot of this is on you. It's your responsibility. 
if this nation is going to be turned around, if this nation is going to have their hearts turned back to God, then it's going to fall to you to do that. And so maybe if Zephaniah is prophesying to Josiah when he's very young, maybe this helped to shape it. Or maybe even Zephaniah is prophesying these things to other people, and those people have the ear of the king, and they are the ones uh, that help uh, Josiah to see what he should be doing. But Here's the prophecy, and imagine hearing these kind of things growing up. Verse 2, I, this is what the Lord says. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. Now, there's a lot of hyperbole, exaggeration to prove a point uh, in the prophets, and I think that we'll see that as we go through tonight. But God says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast I will sweep away the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. It's kind of interesting. Do you see sort of those patterns? Man and beast, birds and fish, and then rubble everything else on the earth. It sounds like a backwards account of what? Creation, right? So you had the earth, and then the earth was filled with vegetation and stuff, and then the seas and the air were filled with birds and fish, and then the land was filled with man and beast, and God says, it's all gone. And so it's sort of a poetic way of talking about everything is going to come undone. And really, we've talked about that before, that that's really what sin does, doesn't it? Sin causes God's good creation and world to come undone. And judgment is sort of the undoing, the uncreation of the world. And all of the things that are beautiful and inhabited are all going to come undone. And we'll see that in this book tonight. Verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. Now, so he kind of lists off several different groups of people. You had the, the priests of Baal or Baal, and then you also had those priests who worshipped and served God, but at the same time also served Baal. And then those who have turned back from following the Lord who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. So those that are idolatrous and worship the idols and those that worship both the idols and God and those that don't worship God and don't see any practical purpose in it at all. And sometimes I wonder if we realize, we talk sometimes about how bad our culture is, and certainly there are things that are bad in our culture and in our world, and, and, but there have always been, right? Throughout history, there have been horrible, horrible things that when people are not worshipers of God, and I don't just mean give lip service to God, because Again, there were people there that were trying to have it both ways, that I worship Yahweh, I'm a worshiper of Yahweh, and if he can do stuff for me, great. If he's going to bless me, great. I'll worship him, I'll give him sacrifices, I'll sing him songs, I'll, I'll give prayers to him, but I'll also do whatever it takes for my plants to grow and for my wife to have children and for me to have everything that I want. I'll do whatever it takes to have everything. And some of the things that they did was that their 
temples or their high places or places of worship would also be places of prostitution because they believed that when Baal and Anat, his sister slash lover, saw humans procreating, that they were reminded of their conjugal responsibility, and then that would cause them to say, oh, yeah, and then they would cause the the land to be fertile and to grow crops. And it's really easy for us to look at that and think, wow, how could you be so sinful and depraved that you could go to a prostitute and think of that as worship? But those people were doing what seemed practical to them, right? It was just what the culture says, this is how it works. This is how it works. This is how farming works. This is how agriculture works. I don't know why it works like that, but, you know, my cousin, and, you know, and he slept with her, and then, you know, he had a great crop that year, so this is how it works. And they were doing what seemed practical and reasonable and logical and just going along with the people of the land. In fact, I, I really like this. Um, Alec Matir had a, a great quote in his commentary on Zephaniah. He says this, Baal was another name for the gross national product. And wherever people see bank balances, prosperity, sound economy, productivity, and mounting exports as the essence of their security, Baal is still worshipped. Wherever excitement in religion becomes an end in itself, and wherever the cult of what helps replaces the joy in what's true, Baal is worshipped. Think about that for just a second. Because, again, all of the idols of all of the cultures, not just in Canaan, but all over the world for all time, it's a matter of taking what seems good, what is good, what God has called good. Crops that grow, that's a good thing, right? But when you make that an ultimate thing, when you say, I can't live, I can't exist, I can't have a good life without my crops and my herds reproducing and us having fertility, I can't live without that, that's an ultimate thing. And when that becomes an ultimate thing to you, then you will do whatever it takes to maintain that ultimate thing, including so much so that things like cult prostitution and child sacrifice became realities in different religions all over the world. And so you can see why it's more than just how you worship. The worship of God and the devotion to God cannot coexist with the worship of created things. When you worship the created instead of the creator, when you give the glory to the stuff he created rather than to God, everything is mixed up and we make a mess of life, don't we? And we have to take these warnings as seriously as the people of their day took these or should have taken these warnings. Verse 7, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. 
On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more, and all who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil or do ill. Now again, can you imagine Josiah growing up hearing these things? And obviously, whether it was from Zephaniah or whether it was from another prophet or whether it was from people who had heard the prophets, Josiah was influenced and shaped by this to know we cannot continue on this path because God is coming in judgment. He's going to search the city with lamps and he is going to not only punish those who are doing evil, not only punish those who are cheating and depriving and robbing and worshiping the idols and create, doing all of these bad things, but also it says those who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. I can pretty much do whatever I want to. I can do whatever is practical for me. I'm just going to look out for number one because God's not going to do anything one way or the other. God's not ever done anything good for me, and God's not going to do anything to punish me. I've got to look out for myself and do what makes sense to me, and God says, I'm coming in judgment. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near Near and hastening fast, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there, a day of wrath. Do you, you notice over and over again, Zephaniah, like many of the prophets, uses this phrase and this idea of the day of the Lord. So when was the day of the Lord or when is the day of the Lord? Has the day of the Lord come? Is the day of the Lord coming? The answer is yes, right? It has. Many times the day of the Lord has come, right? Where evil has been brought down, where Jerusalem has been judged. Did the judgment that, that the prophets were warning is coming, did it come? Yes, it came in the form of Babylon, didn't it? Before that, in Israel, the, the Assyrians came and wiped out Israel. And then eventually Assyria itself the day of the Lord comes for Assyria. And just as Judah is being warned right now, the day of the Lord came for Judah. But all of these things are like archetypes, right? That continue to be true. Not just for the people of that generation and that day. Wait, wait. The day of the Lord is coming. Trust him, follow him, be devoted to him, stop doing the evil things, turn to him, repent of your ways. The day of the Lord is coming. It's coming as a blessing for those who wait patiently for him, and it's coming as judgment for those who rebel against him, but the day of the Lord is coming. There hasn't ever been a generation where that hasn't been true, right? Whether that means the day of the Lord as in a, an event, a cataclysmic event that's coming where that empire that's ruling and reigning right there is brought to the end or from our perspective as the New Testament writers talked about it, an ultimate day of the Lord where all evil is finally destroyed, 
where, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, that even death is destroyed. So that that's the end, the end of all evil and the end of all wickedness, the end of all rebellion, the end of all sin. So what was true in every generation on a, on a limited scale, that this empire that's oppressing you right now, or in this case, you, you people of Judah, that are just living and doing whatever seems right in your own eyes, the day of the Lord is coming. And the day of the Lord came, but there's also a sense in which it hasn't yet come. The day of the Lord is still in the future in an ultimate sense. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and, bra- and battle, battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now again, I mean, you're going to see that, I mean, that's hyperbole because there will still be people on the earth after the day of the Lord. But what does that mean to say Everything's gone. Everybody, everywhere, everything is going to come undone. It means God is the God everywhere and that God is the judge everywhere, which is, by the way, terrific news for those who take refuge in God, right? It's terrific news because it means that God is not a local deity, that as long as you stay in Israel, God can protect you. But man, you go over there, that's some other God's territory. You're out, of God, you're out of Yahweh's jurisdiction. No, that's not the way it works because he is the God of heaven and earth and everywhere, everyone, everywhere answers to Yahweh God. He is not a local deity that has a limited jurisdiction, but he is God everywhere and all people will answer to him. Chapter 2. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff. So now, now it's not just, hey, this bad thing is coming, judgment is coming, but here's a, a therefore, as we've been talking about on Sunday mornings. Here's what your response should be. Gather together before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. And then he gives us three things, or gives them three things to seek. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. Any guess what the Hebrew word there for humble is? Anav, anav. Remember the meek, the humble, those that trust God who endure the present in light of the future. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord. Seek righteousness. I wonder what we think of when we think of righteousness. I think, I think maybe... Correct me if I'm wrong, maybe afterwards. Uh, but, but 
I think maybe we think righteousness means like perfection. Perfection. And, I, and so when we think seek perfection, it's like, oh man, how do you seek perfection? But righteousness always has to do with a right relationship with God. It always has to do with a right relationship. Now, it doesn't just mean, it doesn't just mean a right relationship like if you're cousins, you have a relationship. It's like a husband and wife have a relationship. And there's more to the relationship than just you happen to be related. It's choices that you make. It's behavior. It's action. It's activity. So righteousness is living in such a way that is in line with the relationship you are supposed to have with God. And as Israel, as God's people, as Judah... Righteousness means living in keeping with the covenant we have with God. So that is vertically relational, right? Our relationship with God, but also horizontally relational. The relationship you have with other people. And if you don't act towards other people in a way that is loving and kind, in a way that's generous and charitable, in a way that's fair and just, then you are not acting righteously. You're not seeking righteousness. You are God's people, he's telling them. Seek the Lord, worship him, serve him, obey him, do what he tells you to do. Seek righteousness. Seek to live in such a way that you are reflecting the covenant relationship that you're supposed to have with God. Seek humility. In fact, the word humility there is related to the word anav, the humble. Seek Humility, seek to be lowly. Stop puffing yourself up. Seek to be nothing. Seek to be the lowest. Seek to be people who are totally dependent on God. Isn't this the kind of thing that Jesus taught when he showed up? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are meek. Why? Because your king is here. And the kingdom of God is here. And the blessings are here. You that have done for hundreds of years what Zephaniah said. 600 years before Jesus showed up on the scene and told the remnant, that told the remnant, those who were humble of the land, who do his just commands to seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility. And then Jesus shows up 600 years later and says, blessed are you who've been doing this who've been waiting on the Lord to show up because now the Lord has shown up. And we who are still waiting should seek the Lord, seek humility, seek righteousness. Now, then the Lord goes through not just judgment for Judah, but judgment for all of the people. Judgment on the Philistines, verse four. For Gaza shall be deserted and Ashkelon shall be a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you inhabitants of the seacoast, you nations, you nation of Cherethites, the word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left, and you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. Now again, sometimes we get so caught up in the names and things and we think, well, I don't know where that is or who those people are, but just imagine if he's talking to the Philistine cities and just imagine if those cities were, if what's being said to them was said to cities that you know and recognize. 
Woe to you, Los Angeles. Woe to you, Dallas. Woe to you, Washington. Woe to you, whatever. And then says things like this. Your, your land, your city will be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. I mean, can you imagine what that looks like? I mean, again, it's, and we've used this analogy before, but it's kind of like when you've seen one of those post-apocalyptic movies, you know, and it's showing you New York City and it's showing you, you know, Times Square and it's nobody. There's like tumbleweeds rolling through Times Square, right? And there's dirt and there's animals running around. And that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying, right now, your, your big, beautiful cities with walls and armies and soldiers, but soon you'll be pasture lands. See, again, it's that theme and that idea of coming undone. Everything you've built and all of the wickedness that you've accumulated for yourself and all of your wealth and all of your armies and all of your battlements and all of your protection and all of this stuff that you've accumulated for yourself, I'm going to cause it all to come undone. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah on which they shall graze and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. Again, and we said this when we did the meek shall inherit the earth class, that phrase, the meek shall inherit the earth, that's like the theme of scripture. Isn't that exactly what Zephaniah is saying? He's saying, woe to you, big, bad, mean, evil, wicked empires, Philistia and everybody else. Your cities are going to come undone, and you know who's going to inherit them? The humble of the land who do his just commands, those who seek the Lord, who seek righteousness, who seek humility. They will possess what you have now. Verse 8, the Moabites and the Ammonites. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and have made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. Do you see? Your city is going to come undone. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations." And then judgment against the Cushites and the Assyrians. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst. Again, do you see? And again, if you're living when these empires are at their strongest, and you're living when these cities are at their strongest, I mean, it seems doesn't it? It seems impossible. I can't help but think, I mean, the only thing that I really have to compare it to is, I mean, think about Berlin in the 40s, and you think about the might of the Nazi regime, and you think, how is this ever going to stop? How is this ever going to come to an end? You think about 
Assyria or Babylon or Rome or any of these empires at their height and you think, how is this going to come undone? But God goes down the list and says to every single one of them, including the Jewish people, if you are wicked, you better watch out because your cities and your empires and your nations and the castles and the walls that you build for yourself, everything will come undone and they will be like a desert. They will be like a wasteland. Herds will lie down in her midst. All kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold for her cedar work will be laid bare. I mean, it is, it's a, it's a post-apocalyptic movie playing out in poetic words, isn't it? It's exactly what's happening. He wants you to picture it. Cities that are, there's nobody living in them anymore. They're just skeletons of buildings and there's a window up there and there's an owl hooting from the window. And God says, you think you're strong and you think your gods will protect you and you think your wealth will protect you and you think your soldiers will protect you and you think all of your chariots and your swords and your spears and you think all of these things mean that it can't come undone but I tell you that I am the God of heaven and earth and if you do not take refuge in me, if you take advantage of people, if you worship these false gods, if you put your trust in these things, they will all come undone. Devastation will be on the threshold for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. Do you see? I am. That's exactly what people do. It isn't just that we worship a piece of metal or a piece of stone. It isn't just that we worship a piece of wood. It isn't just that we engage in pagan rituals. It's also that we put our trust in ourselves, our might, our strength, our wisdom, our military, whatever it may be. And God says, no, it's none of you. None of you who put your trust in yourself who say, I am, and there is no other. None of you are going to be victorious. Shockingly, who is it that's going to be victorious? The anav, the humble, and the meek, and the lowly who take refuge in the Lord, who say, I am totally dependent on him. I'm running out of time, I'm sorry. Zephaniah 3, verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious. Now he's getting back to Jerusalem. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. She listens to no voice and accepts no correction. Listen to that sentence. She listens to no voice and accepts no correction. I've told you over and over and over and over again, and you won't listen. Isn't that what God is saying to his people? I've corrected you and corrected you, and you won't listen. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. 
Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. Do you see what it's saying about God's righteousness? It's like, again, it's relational fidelity. It's acting in a way that's right for your relationship. And God, like a faithful husband, is always faithful. And he does exactly what he says he will do. He keeps his promises. He is righteous, but the people are not keeping their covenant with him. I've cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, listen to this, therefore wait for me, declares the Lord. Now, who's he talking to? Is he talking to the Anav, the humble and the meek, and God's going to show up to deliver you, or to the, the wicked? The answer is yes. Right? Yes. Wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms. Like, that sounds nice, doesn't it? Gather nations, assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, now it shifts, for at that time, the speech of the people's I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Wait, wait a second. All of a sudden he switched from this judgment language. I'm gonna pour out my wrath and indignation to I'm going to purify people, not just from Judah, but from the nations, the peoples, so that they call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. I think he's talking about the Gentiles. And I think he's talking about us. That he's changed our speech to a pure speech. And he's gathered us from the nations. And that we are his worshipers that came from a long way off. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let your hands, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival. Blessed are you who mourn. 
so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. Blessed are you who are persecuted. And I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So, like, has that happened? Has our shame been turned into joy? Has the king of Israel, the Lord, come to be in our midst? Or is that yet to be? The answer is yes. Yes, right? Yes, it's happened. The Lord, the king of Israel, has shown up. And he's in our midst. And he's blessed the Anav and those who have allowed themselves to be transformed by him. And yes, we continue to wait. And as we wait, the three things, seek the Lord. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Let's close with a prayer. Father God, we are so incredibly thankful that you have gathered us from among the nations and have purified us and changed us and transformed us. But Father, we continue to wait and we continue to be weak and there continue to be those who need to hear the good news. Help us, Father, to seek you, to seek righteousness, to seek humility. We pray that you continue to make us clean through the blood of Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.